We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So I think everything that's happened since then is vindication for what the Oilers are doing. And like, I think a good analogy is in, from another sport in the NBA, what the Suns were doing in the mid 2000s with Steve yeah. Nash, how they were, it was all about pace and space. And then like now every team in the NBA is doing that. The Suns never won anything. They never got to a, a finals even, but I mean, that's the way everyone plays now. Everyone plays like the Suns. They just ran into a lot of good teams like the Mavericks and the Spurs and just teams that were just more talented. I don't think the X's and O's behind those teams were were faulty in any way. In honor of a great retro jersey week in NFL Week 8, for this Remember That Game, we'll rewind to an episode with Steven Ruiz, now with The Ringer, that we did a while back on The Comeback. 92 wild card between the Buffalo Bills and Houston Oilers, that light blue. And between those two teams and the fans at Rich Stadium that day, perhaps the GOAT starter jacket game. I'm your host, Thomas Emmerich. Hope you enjoy the show and check out many other episodes in the show feed for Remember That Game. Like, outside of the comeback, which is obviously historical, just the game itself was pretty fun. The offenses are fun, just how they play. It, it really wasn't a game you expect to see in 1993. It's a game you expect to see in this era of the NFL, and I think that's what makes it so fun to look back on. Outside of Cowboys-Niners, was K-Gun versus Run-and-Shoot the funnest possible matchup in the early 90s? I think so. Like, And for the reasons I said, like the, the 49ers and Cowboys obviously have historical background and uh, that's not really the case with the bills and the oilers neither team has won a super bowl but from an x's and o's standpoint and just from being a fan of football i think it was one of the the most fun matchups we definitely got in that era of football which was really more physical and and powerful and more defensive focus or run game focus and this was like the opposite of that the bills with the k gun marv levy and ted marchabroda get that rolling in the early 90s on the other side you have the oilers with the run and shoot they got kevin gilbride at the time uh warren moon they have as a starter beginning in the late 80s from 87 to 93 the oilers and warren moon made the playoffs seven straight times no other team did that over that span do you think it's the best team QB combo to never reach a conference title? I mean, you have the Broncos and Bills make a bunch of Super Bowls, but do you think the Oilers are the, the underrated team from this period in time? Yeah, if, if the minimum is making the conference championship, then I definitely think that's the case. I, I think what the, the Vikings did later in the, the decade, or yeah. even a team like the Jaguars were really good for basically every year after 96 up until 99-2000. Uh, but, yeah, they had no success in the playoffs whatsoever. They won, a, uh, I think, a few games here and there. But there was a lot of defeats and a lot of disappointing defeats. They also lost, I think, the following year to uh, Montana's Chiefs. And that was another talented team. This was one of the most talented teams. I believe this particular team, the 93 or the 92 team, had nine Pro Bowlers on it, maybe seven on offense. So that's a lot of talent. Usually those teams are one of the best in the league. And I, they had to sneak into the playoffs in the last few weeks as tough of a first round matchup as you can imagine uh, bills were five to one that season coming off two straight super bowl appearances 
They were tied with the Niners for the highest Super Bowl odds. Oilers were 8-1 to one going into the year. And then as far as pro bowlers, the Oilers had three receivers that season and Warren Moon and running back Lorenzo White all make the Pro Bowl. Receivers that are kind of fly under the radar when you think back on history. As far as household names, you have Jerry Rice and like Michael Irvin from that era. Andre Reid on the Bills side would have a huge game that day. But not as many people remember Haywood Jeffries, Curtis Duncan, Ernest Givens, and uh, Bills Killer over the years. He actually played a huge role in knocking the Bills out when he was on the Browns in the 89 divisional Webster Slaughter, Mike Munchak, and Bruce Matthews. And then from the Bills, more of the household names, Jim Kelly, Thurman Thomas, Bruce Smith, Andre Reid. Can you remember a quarterback-receiver combo cooking in the second half of a 90s playoff game like backup quarterback Frank Reich and Andre Reid did in that game to help the Bills once they went down 35-3? Not that I can remember. The only thing that even comes close to me was not a playoff game, but uh, the Thanksgiving game where Randy Moss went for like 180 yards on three catches. Yeah. But yeah, once that connection started going, that's re- really when the comeback was was sparked. They they just couldn't cover Reed, and he he had some of the bigger catches in the game. And it really it was on Reich. I thought they had opportunities in the first half, and we'll get into this more later. But he was just missing throws, and once he started making those throws, and he just couldn't stop making them, then that's really when Reed blew up, and the Bills' offense just couldn't be stopped by the Oilers. Oilers go up 7-0, success in the first half, double and sometimes triple teaming Bruce Smith. How did they manage that from just personnel and a schematic perspective? One thing they did was get the ball out of his hands quickly, and I think the weather kind of played into that. I don't know if it was the game plan going in, but it was really windy in Buffalo. It was actually kind of warm, at least for Buffalo standards. I think it was like 41 degrees, but there was a little (laughs) bit of rain, and I think it was like 30-mile-per-hour wind. So he was throwing a lot underneath. And the Bills were kind of like giving that up. They were playing a lot of cover three, which is kind of passive, like your cornerbacks and your free safety are dropping back. And then the safety they did bring up into the box was kind of running with the the slot receiver. So that opened up the flats. The flat areas were just open and Moon just kept attacking those, getting the ball out quickly. And like you said, they were doubling Bruce Smith. So it was hard for him to be a factor. I thought he still did a lot of good work in the run game, but he he wasn't really getting close to Warren Moon. And I think the the play calling played a lot into that. The Oilers would go up 28-3 in the first half. Moon would throw four touchdowns, a second to Webster Slaughter, who had two 40-plus yard touchdowns against the Bills in the 89 playoffs when he was with the Browns. Um, and Curtis Duncan, Haywood Jeffries, each on 25 to 30 yard throws. The Oilers don't end up winning this game, get knocked out either the, either the Broncos or the Bills four of the seven years in that playoff run from 87 and 93. If they could get over that hump, do you think run and shoot would have been stigmatized less than it ended up being based on how far the Oilers went? Yeah, I think that's the case with any scheme. Like only one team wins the Super Bowl every year. And I thought the run and shoot did a good job of at least putting the Oilers in that position. And really, once you get to the playoffs, it's kind of like a, a toss-up for who wins. We saw that actually when Kelvin, Kevin Gilbride eventually won a Super Bowl with the Giants when he was the offensive coordinator. Like, that wasn't <laughs> one of the better teams in the league. And they just got hot at the right time. For the Oilers, it seemed to be the opposite. They just couldn't come through when they needed to. And teams like the K, like the K gun is very much influenced by the run and shoot. There's a lot of the same principles, and obviously they threw the ball a ton. But they made to the they made it to the Super Bowl four times. Even if though they didn't win, we still look back at the K gun as an offense that worked and was successful. And that's not the case necessarily with the run and shoot, although it did influence teams later on. So I yeah like victors write histories and the bill and the Oilers never won if they would have won I think we would still be talking about the run and shoot as one of the fundamental offenses in the evolution of football yeah it was a team that had a propensity to both win and lose overtime playoff games in 87 they beat the Seahawks in overtime of course they end up going to mile high and losing 88 
They go to Cleveland, the Schottenheimer Browns, 24-23. Of course, they go on the road the next game and lose at the Bills. 89, they lose a tight overtime game to Pittsburgh in the wild card. 1990, they lose to Sam Weish and Boomer Esiason and their no-huddle offense, which ends up influencing the K-Gun. 91, they end up losing at Denver in the Divisional. 92, they lose this game to Buffalo. 93, they happen to host Joe Montana in the Divisional round with the Chiefs and get knocked out. They have a 21-point fourth quarter flurry. Maybe some of the media, some coaches in the later in the 90s would look back at run and shoot as not how you go deep. You, you do have these influenced offenses like with the Bills, K-Gun, like with the Jaguars in the mid-90s and Kevin Gilbride, run-and-shoot-infused Giants offense. Receivers seeing where on the route tree they need to go, same page mentality with their quarterback, with Eli Manning. Do you feel like that was vindication for the run-and-shoot? Yeah, and I think everything that's happened in the NFL since then and the evolution of the of the sport and particularly the offensive play calling, I think that all vindicates what the Oilers are doing. You can even say that how three wide receiver sets and four wide receiver sets have become basically base offense now. That was the case that's was the case in Houston in the early nineties. They were they were they didn't have a tight end on the field. They only had one running back on the field. They were playing with three three or four receivers at all times. So I think everything that's happened since then is vindication for what the Oilers are doing. And like, I think a good analogy is in from another sport in the NBA, what the Suns were doing in the mid 2000s with Steve yeah. Nash, how they were, it was all about pace and space. And then like now every team in the NBA is doing that. The Suns never won anything. They never got to a, a finals even, but I mean, that's the way everyone plays now. Everyone plays like the Suns. They just ran into a lot of good teams like the Mavericks and the Spurs and just teams that were just more talented. I don't think the X's and O's behind those teams were were faulty in any way. I love that analogy. The the Ots, Suns. Yeah, you have Oilers who, you know, much like the Suns, wouldn't break through to the Super Bowl, but were maybe the funnest team to watch that period. Just were consistently a good team. I mean, seven playoff appearances in a row no one else did that over that streak not even the Niners in 91 the Niners Steve Young's first year as starter he missed a few games with injury but they they missed the playoffs so and the Niners were actually bounced out of the final playoff spot that season by the Atlanta Falcons a run and shoot influence there in the early 90s and Deion Sanders who would be a fun piece to use offensively in the run and shoot just like I, I think it was Curtis Duncan on the uh, Oilers' third touchdown, you, you see these four wide receiver sets and a receiver motioning from one s- the mm-hmm. slot on one side to the other side and just setting, like right before the snap, uh, they were giving the Bills fits on this in the first half. Yeah, the Bills really had to adjust at halftime. Like when I was watching the game, I was kind of watching it in real time and trying to fig- piece together what they were doing defensively. And at halftime, I was just in my notes, I was just like, I don't know what they can do. Like, no matter what coverage they play, no matter what personnel is out on the field, they're just getting gashed. And if they try to put two safeties deep to to guard against those seam routes or the the deeper routes, the the Oilers would just run. They they would usually call a draw and just run. And uh, it, it would usually go for like eight or nine yards. So the Bills were really like stuck in between two things like they had to pick their poison if they want to get gashed in the run game or do they want to get gashed in the passing game eventually by halftime. And I think it, they really figured it out at the end of the first half, they came, they found something that worked and that I think is what allowed them to make this comeback along with a lot of lucky bounces and a lot of questionable calls by the refs. Early on in their comeback, they have Don Beebe, corner. He basically shoves him out of bounds right at the start of the play. Refs don't see it. The corner lets him go. And then you also have, on on defense for the Bills, uh, it it seemed to me like Daryl Talley was coming in as a pass rusher, or they're they're, they're kind of moving him all over the place on defense and throwing Warren Moon off, whether it's undercutting his pass in the secondary or bringing him off the edge. And and the Bills had Cornelius Bennett out that week. They they were struggling to find a, a counter balance to Bruce Smith, but it seems like they cracked the code a little bit by sending extra pressure in the second half. If I if I kind of read that correctly, they were. I don't know if they were sending extra pressure, but they were sending it from different spots. Like you said, they got Tally right. more involved. Tally was off the ball linebacker, and 
what they did, it was interesting because how they started out, they started in dime. They had six defensive backs on the field, which makes sense because the Oilers are playing with four wide receivers. And that's kind of a modern approach to football. That's how teams do it now. But it wasn't working, and a, a big reason why it wasn't working, and this is a name that doesn't come up a lot, but Clifford Hicks, he's a, a, more of a special teamers for the Bills. And I, I think back then teams weren't so concerned with having a lot of depth at cornerback because you were getting so much like fullbacks on the field and tight end, so you were playing base defense a lot. So I don't think he was a player that should have been on the field much, and he was starting. He was basically an outside linebacker. They were still in like a three, four structure, but the two outside guys were defensive backs and the Oilers just attacked him relentlessly. I think he gave up all three touchdowns and he, he, I think he had a a defensive holding call on the third down. He was just having a rough game and they finally were like, okay, enough of this. We're taking him out and we're going to just play base defense against these four wide receiver sets. So they had four linebackers and three defensive linemen on the field with four receivers in the second half. And that's what allowed them to play with two safeties deep and still stop the run because you still have those run defenders. Right. Whereas if you play with two safeties deep and then you have two defensive backs acting as outside linebackers, you're going to get bulled over in the run game. So they finally just said, screw it. We're going to make them throw deep on us. We're going to play. We're going to flood the underneath areas so Warren Moon can't keep throwing it to the flats. And we're going to make them throw downfield. And with it being windy, that makes sense. Like those throws are way more difficult. In the second half, you saw it. Moon just... There, he was just missing by a little bit. Like some of the throws would be a little high and it would bounce off his receiver's hands and end up being an interception. I think that's how the first interception was thrown. And I thought the Bills probably should have came to that conclusion a little earlier, but at least they came to it better late than never. And that's really what turned around their defense and allowed them to start stopping the Oilers' offense. Halftime, twenty-eight to three. Eventually becomes thirty-five to three on a pick six, the beginning of the second half. Is this comeback crazier than Atlanta's 28-3? to 28-3 is the most dangerous lead in football, apparently. But <laughs> uh, I think it's crazier in that, like, when you're down by that many points that late in the game, like, you have to be perfect. You can't mess up anything. Like, the Patriots were just perfect. Like, Tom Brady wasn't missing throws. The defense was just doing everything they had to do had to do to get the Falcons off the field. I don't think that was necessarily the case with the Bills. Like, I don't... They obviously played better, and their defense played better, but what made it crazier is that they were just getting every bounce possible, Mm -hmm. and they were getting the benefit of every call. So I think they got a lot of help, and I don't know if the comeback was as impressive as the Patriots from, like, just a pure performance standpoint, but it was definitely a more entertaining one because of that, because it was so crazy. Yeah, some crazy bounces, especially in a third-quarter stretch where in under seven minutes, the Bills put up 28 points. It eventually would become 35 unanswered. Starting with a drive where Frank Reich throws a pass that goes through a linebacker's hands, I believe, or it was maybe it was a defensive back, and goes straight to Metzelaar's. And then there's another play in the game where Frank Reich throws over the middle and two Oilers collide trying to catch it when Reich was locked in on Andre Reed. Don Beebe stepping out of bounds and then running down the field and, and catching a touchdown because the, the Oilers cornerback just didn't guard him because he was already out of bounds. Um, a lot of things bouncing their way. But at the same time, it seemed like Reich and Reed really found some sort of combination. It seemed like it started with him hitting Andre Reed uh, over the middle, but also they were really messing with that Oilers cover three at times, as you noted in your tweet thread, the post wheel. It seemed like they were really catching them off guard with that. Right. The the Oilers kind of just started playing so passively on defense, which, I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense when you're up 33 points, but that's really, I think, what allowed them to start get to get going on offense, they started throwing uh, to Don Beebe on little like stop and hitch routes, like and that's pretty good. That's gonna work against cover three because in cover three, your cornerback is basically bailing to the deep third, so he's bailing like 15 yards back at the snap. So those little outside comeback routes are gonna be open, and that was a, a big problem for them. They just play too soft, and then obviously when you're playing the same coverage over and over again. The offensive coordinator from the other team knows that and he can start to call plays designed specifically to beat that coverage. And that's what happened. 
I think on the first drive where they scored a touchdown, they they called the the post wheel combination, and the Oilers handed it handled it a bit better, and uh, the cornerback was at least in position. The nickel cornerback was at least in position to make a play on the ball. I don't think he like meant to be there. Like he kind of turned his head around late, and the ball just hit his hand, and it, yeah. it just looked like he defended the pass. But that wasn't the case on the next drive and Reed just got open deep because the cornerback went with the post route that brought him inside. So there was no one to cover the deep outside and he was wide open. Play where it happens to hit the Oilers cornerback. If the Oilers had even covered that tight, likely interception, it goes straight to the Oilers cornerback. If Reed puts it on target, you know, a little further out in the end zone, it's it's an easy touchdown catch. Bills, a mix of getting the lucky bounce, but also allowing the Oilers to shoot themselves in the foot. It seemed like at some point the Bills scrapped the cover three a little bit more and just went to two. But the same problem caught with their eyes in the backfield, that defensive back. And then they're in the cover three and the post wheels hitting them or whether in the two and they have someone who's supposed to be trailing the receiver up the seam, usually Andre Reed, and Reich just hits the throw. Yeah, uh, and I, I watched like an NFL Films piece on the on the game, and uh, the safety, I'm forgetting his name, he's the one that had the pick six. He's kind of explaining what happened on the retouchdown I think you're referring to where the cornerback doesn't really carry him downfield. He saw the cornerback make a gesture, and it was loud in Buffalo, so the fans influenced this play. He thought the corner was going to was going to uh, run with Reed downfield, and he was supposed to come and play the flats, which is a, a traditional cover three. But apparently that's not what the cornerback was saying, and the cornerback was playing cover two. And in cover two, you're play- the cornerback is the one playing the flats, and the yeah. safety is the one that has deep. So we you had two players going to the flats, and Andre Reed was just wide open down the sideline. And that that's also part of it. That's also why I don't think – from just the Bills' perspective, it, the comeback was necessarily as impressive as what the Patriots did when they came back against the Falcons because the Oilers were shooting themselves in the foot a lot throughout the, the second half, including the ways you said where I think Kenny Robinson was the linebacker where the ball just went right through his hands, and that could have been an interception. And then the other inter- the other dropped interception you referred to. And it seemed like yeah, uh, Jackson was playing a lot of slot coverage on Andre Reid and getting his eyes in the backfield. And then Reed, uh, to his credit, was making some good throws up the seam or on a post, either in between or just before the safeties. I believe the touchdown where the Bills finally took the lead at the end of the game before the Oilers tied it, it was a seam pass. And the Oilers' free safety was in position to guard. He wasn't that far away. He was like five yards away. And he just didn't. he He was looking at right, too. And as Reich was loading up to make the throw and then eventually making the throw, he just didn't break on the football and he got there like just a yard or two late. It was a a really good catch by the receiver. He had to take a hit. And I don't know. I I just don't know why he didn't make a, a, like didn't break on the ball quicker. Apparently he was like a really good safety who had good instincts and he just, his mind just froze. And I think that just happened with the Oilers time after time in that second half. And that's why they lost the game. Some pretty fancy route running from Andre Reed. Seemed like one of the savvier route runners of that time. Reich was getting more time to throw the ball, and his receivers were getting more, whether it was a double move. Reed, uh, on one of the, the, the post touchdown in the red zone, had a beautiful route where he like, looked like he was going out and then cut in for the post and just had the safety. I'm not sure if he thought the outside receiver more of a threat or if he was just thrown off by thinking Reed was going to the corner on, on the corner post. But you saw some beautiful stuff from Andre Reed in the second half of that game and gave me a reminder why he's a hall of fame receiver yeah i really i was in the same boat as you i didn't know much about reed i knew he was a great player but i didn't realize he was and that maybe this isn't the case maybe it was just this one game but i didn't realize he was doing a lot of his damage out of the slot and that's where he was playing in this game at least don bb was on the outside and james lofton was on the other side and as for that play yeah it was just a great route running a great play call i think uh reich is the one that came up with the play call actually he expected huh. He expected the uh, he expected the the Oilers to be in that coverage they were in. Actually, they got they called the timeout right before it, so maybe they got a pre snap look, and that's how they knew. They called the timeout, and he came to the sideline, and uh, Marv Levy asked him what he liked, and that's the play that Frank Wright called. He, it was actually have the play call. He, it was Bull sixty five. I think that's one of their 
okay. hur- hurry up calls. And it's basically like you said, you the two out outside receivers run deep, and I think they try to occupy the safeties, and then you have the inside receiver run a little post route into the void between those two splitting deep safety. So it was really a one-on-one with Reed versus a nickelback. And you have a hall of fame wide receiver on a small nickelback. You, you love that matchup and the Bills obviously did. And it worked out for him. It was a great route and a, a great throw and Wright deserves credit because he kept making all the throws he had to make in the, the second half after the first half where he, I thought he was really leaving a lot of yards on the field. Such a shocking turnaround because in week 17, the Bills go to Houston. Jim Kelly gets injured in the second quarter. Frank Reich performs pretty poor that game. They lose 27-3. to And this was a game that would have given the Bills home field advantage throughout the playoffs. Instead, Frank Reich plays really poor and they get smashed by the Oilers. All the Oilers had to gain was moving from the sixth seed up to the five seed. So they get to go to the defending AFC champion Buffalo instead of being the sixth seed and getting to visit San Diego that year with Stan Humphreys would go on to the divisional round and lose 31-0 to the Dolphins. Uh, so would have gotten a much better matchup in the first round. And the Oilers only used Warren Moon sparingly that day because he had been out for six weeks with an injury. He'd gotten to warm, warm up a little bit, but mainly it was backup Cody Carlson. Still waxed the Bills 27-3 in large part because Reich did not play well. Then you see this turnaround in the second half of the wild card game completes the duo of owning the biggest comeback in college football history with the University of Maryland, 31-0 deficit, taking that in the NFL as well. But I really loved the video you posted on that thread of Oilers defensive coordinator Jim Eddy plotting out the Bills' tendencies on a whiteboard, trying to catch up to the Bills' K-gun. Probably the most unenviable position to be in in January 1993. Yeah, you know it's not going well when you're like charting out their offensive plays on the sideline on a whiteboard. I've never seen that before. Like he was charting out their personnel, their formation, their play call. He was just desperate to find something to stop the Bills. I think he eventually found his answer, but it was too late. Like he just had to stop playing so conservative, stop playing zone. Like they had a lot of success playing man coverage in the first half and they went away with it. I don't know why. I guess they were afraid of the big play. And the few time, the one time they did get a stop in the second half, they were playing man coverage on on third down, and that's when they almost had the interception on uh, right, the one they dropped. So, I thought maybe Eddie had a, an easier job than he made it out to be. I thought his scrambling wasn't necessary. He should have just kept doing what he was doing in the first half. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Catching up to the K-Gun, they're no huddle. And whether it's Jim Kelly or Frank Reich, the fastest offense in the NFL. Jim Eddy gets fired the next day, replaced by Buddy Ryan. Let's get real crazy. How does this affect offensive coordinator Kevin Gilbride's career? He would eventually be punched in the face on the sideline by Buddy Ryan. And Ryan would also uh, go to the press and say that Gilbride will be selling insurance in two years. And then Gilbride leaves and has a resurgence with the Jaguars. I like to think as a result of this game, he seemed to have a a killer instinct as far as his play calling at the end of games. In the divisional round upset in Denver with Jacksonville a few years later, 
they have a chance to kick a field goal, keep it a one-score game, or, or play conservative and try to chew the clock in the red zone. Instead, we're going fade to Jimmy Smith. <laughs> we're, we're putting it away. Two-score game. Let's go here. In the Super Bowl, the Giants, the Patriots, Plaxico, faint like you're doing something around the marker and get into the end zone. Do you think this confluence of events of losing this big lead and then some of the stuff that Buddy Ryan put him through had maybe a positive effect on his career? Yeah, and it's kind of interesting that those two crossed paths because I think their offensive and defensive approaches, though those two guys obviously didn't get along, I think they were kind of intertwined, like, Buddy Ryan is really what forced NFL offenses to start spreading things out. Like when you had when you're playing with two fullbacks and a tight end and all these guys near the line of scrimmage, near the quarterback, it's easier to disguise blitzes. And obviously that's what Buddy Ryan was doing. He was just putting a bunch of guys around the line of scrimmage. And you you didn't know who was coming mm-hmm. and you couldn't block them. So that's really what led to the like the one back offensive sets that we see now and we started to see in Houston and places and Washington was really the first one to do it. So it's kind of interesting that Buddy Ryan's defense is what kind of pushed Kevin Gilbride's offensive approach to the forefront. And as for like blowing the lead, I think yeah, definitely it definitely influenced how he called plays at the end of games after that. Coaches are so reactionary. Like when something happens, I think it just forces them to just reassess their whole philosophy. And I think that was a that was had to be a moment for him. Like you blow a thirty-five to three lead, and your offense is really blamed for the reason why. Because that was really the thing. It was can the run and shoot win in the playoffs? Can it protect leads? And that was just a disaster scenario for him. So I definitely think it forced him to adjust his play calling and and. I thought that was an area where he really struggled. The rest of the game, I thought he did a fine job. Even in the second half, they had opportunities. The players just didn't execute. But that last drive, when they could have gone for a touchdown instead of settling for the field goal, which eventually forced overtime. And the thing about that field goal is Al Del Greco, I think it was the drive before, maybe it was two drives before, where they botched the, the, the snap and then couldn't get a field goal off. He got tackled and he hit his hard he hit his uh, head hard on the ground and he was, I think he was concussed. Like he said, and the thing I watched from NFL films that he didn't remember the next five minutes. He didn't know where he was and he didn't remember that field goal that he kicked. He didn't remember how far of a field goal it was the one that forced overtime. So he was just out of sorts. So the fact that they were even relying on him to kick a field goal was probably not the right move. They're lucky he made it. And then another thing for the NFL films thing was Hayward Jeffries just bash the play calling. He said it was the most conservative play calling he's ever seen. And that the, he puts that, that drive and how it didn't end in a touchdown on the coaches. I think it was the edge of the red zone and they have a minute left and three timeouts. First down Warren moon, the play before and fourth down when they were, when they were at the edge of field goal range, they went for it. Warren moon has all day to throw hangs in the pocket, throws a strike down the middle. First down the fouling play moon does the opposite he, he has all day in the pocket. The Bills, both defenses are exhausted at this point. And instead of hanging the pocket, before pressure gets there, he just skies out of the back of the end zone. Second down, handoff. Third down, Moon runs. Uh, you know, isn't his strong suit hanging the pocket and finding receivers his strong suit, especially third and long, and gets tackled. So no targeted receivers once they're inside the 20 with three timeouts, almost playing too conservative for the field goal there. To go to overtime. Yeah, and it's it's hard to know what the play calls were or what the instructions were to to Moon. Right. Like obviously, you don't like the second down run, but he did call pass. Gilbride did call passing plays. We yeah. don't know what the design was because it's hard to see from the broadcast angle, especially in 90, 93 when they were just like so zoomed in on the the quarterback. But we don't know if he said, like, if this one guy's not open, just throw it away. Or this one guy's open, you can scramble. And that's end- that's what ended up happening. But, yeah, I just got to take it from Jeffries, who was in the huddle, who did know the play call, who was privy to what instruction Moon was getting. And if he says it was conservative, I have to take his word for it. And it looked like it was conservative to me. Because, like you said, Moon was known for hanging in the pocket and throwing and, like, waiting for receivers to get open. That just wasn't what he did on those those final two pass calls. 
wonder if hey let's see if we can bust this open if it's not sky it out the back of the end zone on first down be my guess something yeah. along those lines because he released it i mean the play before did a beautiful job hanging in the pocket extending the play and the game attacking downfield and then the following play you just saw him hits three seconds out the back of the end zone actually one more thing in regulation Steve Christie onside kick to himself once the Bills score their first touchdown and make it 35-10. Is that the gutsiest kicker play you've ever seen? Yes. Like, he just went head-on into that that pile, and that's something you don't really see kickers do. Like, we've had kickers who've, like, hit, come up with big hits on kick returns. Like, I'm thinking of uh, Pat McAfee, uh, the hit on, uh, I can't remember oh. the the Broncos returner. Like we've seen stuff like that, but I think that's a little easier to do. It doesn't take as much bravery as just going head first into a huge linebacker or whatever position that guy was. And he just, he went after it and he got that ball. And that's without that recovery, this comeback doesn't happen. And it's interesting because there was like three, they were, I don't think they were all designed onside kicks, but they were all ended up being like onside kicks. Like the Oilers had one, after I believe they went up 35 to three where they were just squibbing it and the ball just happened to hit one of the guys on the front line of the, uh, the bills return unit. And they were lucky that they even recovered the ball, the bills because an Oilers player like was in great position to recover it. And I think he just, it just popped out of his arms and then it went right to the bills guy. So if that, if they get that bounce, we're not even having this podcast right now. We're not talking about, the bills come back. Yeah, they were they were holding for the kickoff, so something wasn't quite right. And then they'd beam it at someone who's at like the forty yard line for the Bills, and it ricochet off them. Yeah, multiple times the the Oilers and the other recover. Oilers would go up twenty eight three, and the announcers would be quick to say, "Oh no, this isn't unsportsmanlike." Them attempting onside kicks up twenty eight to three. This this was an accident. That would be shameful if they're trying an onside kick right now because they're up so much. Mm-hmm. We get to overtime after the Oilers kick a field goal, make it 38-38. First drive, Moon, third down, throws an out, some kind of like pivot route, and Ernest Givens, held by Daryl Talley, gets picked. Do you think that's the difference between that pass being on target and being an interception? And as far as egregious, is this in the neighborhood of 2019 NFCC in New Orleans? I definitely think it's a completion if if Tally doesn't hold because he's it's not like he just held him and let go immediately like he was on him for like a good like three seconds and Tally after the game was like I have or not after the game but this was later on was saying that he he had the five yards where he could put his hands on him but this was beyond five yards it's like seven or eight yards downfield and Frank Reich has actually said since then that it was a clear holding and it should have been called so I don't think you can argue with that call like even the bills players are like yeah that was a penalty and i don't think in a vacuum that call was as egregious as what happened in new orleans but when you get put together all of the calls that went the bills way then i think they oilers fans definitely have a case because it wasn't just that play and it wasn't just dom bb running out of bounds i think earlier on that that drive where bb eventually scores he catches a ball go He's on the ground and he just holds the ball up and an Oilers player comes and knocks it out and recovers it. But oh yeah, the refs had already called the play dead, which I guess you can argue that that BB had given himself up. But I don't know if it, in today's day and age where you could replay that sort of thing, I don't. That might get reversed and the Oilers might get the ball back. So there was just a lot of calls and I think I'm missing one or two where they went against the Oilers and if any of those calls are reversed, I think the Houston wins the game. And you need that type of luck when you're coming back from 35 to 3. Like, you're not going to be able to do it on skill alone. You need to get bounces. You need to get calls. I mean, the Bills got everything just went right for the Bills that game. And that's why they came back. Bills get the ball on that interception, kick the field goal, win the game. Reich would go on to the following week, start again, win 24 to 3 in Pittsburgh. He and Nick Foles heading into 2018 were the only two quarterbacks in NFL history. I think I actually might have seen this in an article you had at For the Win from 2016, but it was how Frank Reich was the only quarterback in history to start multiple playoff games and be undefeated. And then in 2017, Nick Foles becomes the second. Of course, in 2018, he loses in New Orleans. And 
Frank Reich reassumes that position. Is what Frank Reich managed in 92 more shocking than what Nick Foles did in 2017? I think you have to say it is because Nick Foles' run, as good as it was, didn't include a 35-3 to comeback. Yeah. Uh, that's never happened before. I don't know when it's ever going to happen again. Like Nick Foles, and when you look back at his first playoff game, like it wasn't that great against the Falcons. Like it, the, Fal- the Eagles didn't score that many points. They almost lost the game, actually, and Foles got a couple good bounces. I I haven't watched the, uh, the, the game the following week against the Steelers, but Reich made a lot of high-level passes in that second half. I think the same could be said for Foles uh, from the NFC Championship on, but not the week before. So I'll, I'm going to give it to Frank. I'm kind of biased. I'm a University of Maryland graduate, so I'm going to, yeah. you know, I'm going to boost up the Terps. But and he proved it wasn't a fluke, like you said. He came back in. Uh, he has the largest comeback in college football history against Miami at Maryland. So I'm going to give it to Reich. I think that's far more impressive, and the fact that he did it on like sh- not short rest but that was his first start like kelly got hurt the game before while Foles had i think he had three starts in the regular season before then so he kind of was used to playing he was he had gotten in that routine whereas frank was just coming in cold and just from the second half on just lit the lit defenses on fire boomer esiason who he's, he's university of maryland right yeah Yep. They were throwing to the studio, went on to talk about how when Frank Reich pulled off that comeback, I think he turned off the game and assumed, because Frank Reich was a backup quarterback and came in in relief in that Maryland comeback against Miami. And Esiason was talking about how, for whatever reason, he had this ability to give players this feeling that it wasn't over. Marv Levy also had a speech appealing to the Bills' pride, having been the AFC title winners two seasons in a row. But could you argue those Bills teams peaked before they reached the last three Super Bowls, maybe with the 90 Super Bowl against the Giants? Or what did what they managed with a backup quarterback in 92, was that a testament to being about as strong as their 1990 squad. Yeah, I think it's kind of hard to say because we kind of judge them on what happened in those Super Bowls. And those last three Super Bowls weren't really competitive against the Redskins and the Cowboys twice in a row. While against the Giants, obviously, they were in the lead. They probably they were heavily favored. They should have won that game and Norwood misses the kick. So I would say no, just based on what I know about the team. I thought the defense got stronger as their little almost dynasty went on. The offense definitely got stronger. Reed was more of a threat later on in the the Super Bowl run, and I thought Kelly was even a better player. And like you said, they they were able to not only – like after that first half, they outscored their opponents the next two games with Reich at quarterback – by like 50 points and they were pretty two good opponents Steelers were really good that year they obviously had the bye and uh the Oilers were a great team too they were top 10 in defense and offense so if you're able to to put that many points on teams like that I think that's a testament to how good that team was around Reich and I want to point out that Reich also had a comeback in a bowl game. I think Asiason mentions this when they throw it to the studio. He had a 21-3 to comeback in the bowl game against Tennessee. So he's just a master of coming back. I, I don't think this game was any fluke. He's He obviously doesn't get down when he when his team does. They had a cheerleader in Asiason in the studio, yeah, referencing that Sun Bowl as well. And now, yeah, Reich, now a beloved coach in Indianapolis, seems like he uh, makes a good impression on people. The following week, Reich wins again, cements his 2-0 career as a playoff starter. In the conference title, Jim Kelly returns. They have a, a shootout with Marino and the Dolphins, win in Miami. Almost a, a full Carson Wentz situation going on where you have the franchise quarterback who's very good, and then a backup who could come in and be clutch in a pinch. Meanwhile, the Oilers, they have that yeah, seven-year playoff run, but no conference title appearances in the 93 or 92-93 playoffs. Yeah, they blow that lead. If you were putting your mind in, the, uh, in, in a Houston Oilers fan, at that time, Houston, 
kind of referred to as as Washington sports is the, the last 20 years in a lot of ways. A lot of heartbreak, but maybe the Oilers probably some more success. The Washington, you know, did end up getting over the hump last few years in hockey and baseball, much like the the Rockets did eventually for the city of Houston. But like the Rockets would lose the first two games of a Western Conference Finals, and their local paper would put out like a choke city headline. So this is the state of mind in Houston right now, as far as trying to get over the hump. If you could put your mind in that place, which would be more painful to you? Blowing a 35-3 lead in a wild card game, like here in January 93. Falling behind 28-7 to against that same team the next season and not mounting any sort of comeback as the Bills would just route them in the 93 regular season to drop Houston to 1-4. Or would this be the most painful of them all? Houston did rally from 1-4 to finish 12-4, get a first round by only to host Joe Montana in the divisional round, give up 21 points in the fourth quarter, and lose. Which one of those would be most painful for you as a fan? I think it would be that last one, because that's really when things started to crumble for this Houston team. They were always, like you said, they made the playoffs every year, So there was, and they were really talented, so it was always, always like, if we could just get over this hump, if we could just get over this hump, we'll get, we're Super Bowl contenders. And you kind of get that illusion that they got over the hump when they did go on that run in 93. And this was after Buddy Ryan had come. And so you're excited mm-hmm. about Buddy Ryan. You're excited about what the offense is doing. And then for it just to end in an instant, like they didn't even win one playoff game, just one and done. I think that's when it starts to set in that this team is never going to do anything. And this is over and everything that you've just been following and hoping would get over that hump these last seven years. It just wasn't going to happen. So I think that just it all coming together that this team wasn't ever going to accomplish anything that had to be the most heartbreaking thing. Cause you always had hope, even when you lost, even when they lost to the bills, they hire buddy Ryan that off season. So you're like, we have hope. Like there's a reason to believe that things are going to change. And then when it does look like things are going to change and then it ends up being the same old story with the Oilers. Again, you just gotta be like, I don't know how you don't just give up and you're just like, I'm defeated. I don't, this team isn't doing anything. And eventually the team moves like I think three years later. Uh, so obviously I, I, I think that the city was ready for that team to move on. They eventually got a team back. So that's good. But I don't know how you look back on that era. Like it was obviously really fun, but it probably led to the, some of the biggest heartbreaks for that fan base. Makes you think of yeah, your son's analogy, almost like that series against the Spurs where Nash gets bumped into the scores table, Stoudemire gets suspended for coming mm-hmm. off the bench, and that turns the series through a weird twist of fate. And then when Houston goes to Tennessee, you also lose maybe the GOAT starter jacket. Or I mean there's a lot of, there's a lot of great options in the GOAT starter jacket conversation. The Bills look pretty good too. Is this the GOAT starter jacket game? It's really good, and I'll, I'll just say yes, because I think the Oilers' color scheme is needs to come back. Like That was that was probably the greatest loss in that franchise's history is when they went to the Titans rebranding, and they lost that uniform, and then the Adams family is not going to, so Houston couldn't go back to the Oilers. Yeah. But I want to say this about the Bills' starter jackets. They were good. If you want to see a nice outfit, look at Jim Kelly on the sideline. He's got his starter uh, jacket and he's got his hat on. He, yeah. he looks like he's ready to like go to a dance dance off. But there's a <laughs> there's a fan in the crowd that has like a black version of the starter jacket of the Bill starter jacket, and that's the best starter jacket from that game, even better than the Oilers one. Oh man, yeah. I remember, yeah, Jim, a lot of good stuff with Jim Kelly on that sideline, and and him next to Marv Levy, just. You see, uh, and then you see Kevin Gilbride too. You see, you know, three generations of rocking the starter jacket. It's quite a beautiful thing. Gilbride in a starter jacket, conversing with Warren Moon in his in that great Oilers jersey is a beautiful piece of history as well. Looking back at this period of Oilers history is tough. They end up leaving for Tennessee and then finally breaking through to the Super Bowl with those garish new uniforms. <laughs> And I, I have a brewing theory that teams break through when they go full 90s with their jersey switch. Worked for the Broncos, worked for the Utah Jazz, worked for the Seattle Supersonics. They finally get through the Western Conference Finals. The Rams change their jerseys, win the Super Bowl. 
But you leave behind both their great former jersey and this great run-and-shoe offense in one of its earliest, purest forms. Kevin Gobride coming from the CFL. You have Oilers coach Jack Party. Yeah, he goes to Houston, Houston Cougars, eventually to the NFL. He works with Daryl Mouse Davis with the Houston Gamblers in the USFL. And then and Mouse Davis goes to the Lions, brings run and shoot there. June Jones and Jerry Glanville, who were also earlier parts of that Oilers era from 87 to 93. You know, they, they bring that to Atlanta. Is this in NFL football, early 90s run and shoot? the most impactful development schematically of that era, even though you have these Cowboys and and Niners teams that dominated more so as far as success. Yeah, I don't think that's much of a stretch. And I'll throw in that Nick Saban was actually, I think, the defensive coordinator for the Oilers. At least he was on the defensive staff before he went to Cleveland with Belichick. So you could throw him into the mix too. So you could argue that Houston was really the epicenter of the schematic evolution of the NFL at that time. And it was really like a large gap between then and then probably like 2012 where, real, where we got another another era of change. Like really the only big differences between them that were made were like Tampa 2, the rise of Tampa 2, and that became the popular defense after the fall of Buddy Ryan. That was the next thing that came up. But from off, from an offensive standpoint – yeah, Houston, without the Oilers, I, I wonder how long it takes for offenses to start spreading things out and start throwing the ball more. It might have taken a little bit longer. I'm 100% sure we would have been there by now. We st- we would have been in the same era of football that we are now where teams are, are passing the ball like 65% of the time and have three wide receivers on the field at like 90% of the time. But it all started in Houston. It had to start somewhere, and that's where it started. This has been another episode of Remember That Game. Please rate, review, subscribe, and check out more episodes. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com